go ahead and say your name and what you'd like to be doing in the next 10 years. In the next 10 years. Let me ask you a question. Can you imagine, can imagine a the classroom of the future? Will it have a robot teacher? Will we marry a something great? This is not normal distribution. interactive and Escape Velocity. From USC Viterbi School of Engineering, this is Escape Velocity. I'm Daniel Drujora. And I'm Amy Blumenthal. Welcome to the podcast. Each episode, we explore the intersection of engineering and everyday life. The extraordinary with the mundane, and often the mundane with the impossible. Are computers changing human character? Can we download our dreams? Can people really live in space? Do engineers think beyond science? These and many other questions are explored by the students and faculty at USC Viterbi, and they are just a few of the themes we'll touch upon. Today, Acoustic Museums. face it, our world is noisy. Everywhere you go, the world is screaming at you. Headlines, commercials, honking cars. We retreat into our headphones, and as we do, it becomes harder and harder to listen to the subtle, the understated, the silence. Slowly, we're losing our ability to savor sound, and with that, maybe our ability to listen. Let's go back to a time before headphones, before speakers, when the world was a much quieter place will follow an international team of researchers led by USC Viterbi acoustics professor Chris Kiriakakis, founding director of USC's Immersive Audio Lab, and UCLA professor Sharon Gerstel, expert in Byzantine art history and archaeology. Together, they went back into the past to explore ancient sounds. What they found could revolutionize our perception of sound in space. Just think about this for a second. What if sound didn't die? Some researchers have gone as far as to suggest that sounds, after they're emitted, are still bouncing around for centuries. Every time they hit a surface, of course, they lose a lot of energy. But in a way, some part of sounds created centuries ago is still bouncing around, maybe at incredibly minute levels, of course, that will never be heard. But I find that notion very romantic and very scientifically interesting, that, that we could be there participating in those tests. Because of its ability to place us in time and space, sound creates our reality. When you think about it, it makes sense. Sounds conjure up images of places, people, and emotions in our lives. Like your mom cooking in the kitchen. Or that sound that made you run out of the house with a dollar. Sounds that reassure us all's well with the world. or transport us to a different galaxy far, far away. What we're actually going to be exploring in this episode is the physicality of these sounds. It starts like this. An archaeologist, a musicologist, a monk, and an electrical engineer walk into a 7th century Byzantine church. You might ask yourself, what is an electrical engineer doing in ancient Greece, recording ancient buildings? Somebody in Byzantine times uh, knew about acoustics, uh, 
is, is really ancient acoustic archaeology, as I like to call it. Chris Kariakakis's research interests lie at the intersection of acoustics, psychoacoustics, and audio signal processing. These days, he's working to solve acoustical and perceptual limitations that degrade audio quality in every electronic device that has ears. One day, when we'll be able to converse with our refrigerator, we can thank Kariakakis that it understands us. Through his audio tech company, Odyssey, he holds several patents on products found in millions of homes, cars, movie theaters, and soon PCs and mobile devices. In short, Kariakakis lives and breathes sound. Now, when you think of psychoacoustics, this isn't about manipulating people's emotions using sound. It's about the mechanical and mental processes that affect our perception of sonic events. But what about what's playing now? Or the room you're in? Or the car you're in? That's telling you what's real and what's not. You know, your brain processes, it seems like simple, uh, really simple. You know, you hear all the things that happen in the world around you, but it's really like magic. There's a lot of weird stuff that goes on. The signals that are reaching our brain through our ears, we can manipulate in a way to fool the brain much easier than we can through the eyes. And I think that's a big advantage of sound. Kiriakakis' research on psychoacoustics was cited in a New York Times article that found its way to Sharon Gerstel a UCLA professor of Byzantine art history and archaeology who was getting ready to go to Thessaloniki, Greece to record sounds of ancient churches. So the article talked about the psychology of sound and sound spaces, and it was exactly where I wanted to go with the research. Um, the fact that he had a Greek last name made me think, this guy is going to get the project. Uh, and in fact, from the first moment we were on the phone, it was clear there was a connection. Yes, I've always been very interested in working with people outside my field. I think that's really when you can break barriers. I've worked with uh, musicians. This is the first time I've had a collaboration with, with an art historian. You come up with really fascinating ideas. This notion that a UCLA faculty member and a USC faculty member could work together on innovative research, putting the resources of two great universities to use, was, I think, attractive to both of us. Kiriakakis invited his longtime collaborator, James Donahue, into the project a professor of music production at Berkeley College of Music. His resume has some pretty iconic sounds. The Boston Symphony, Julia Child, Aerosmith, and this guy right here. Hi-ho, Kermit the Frog here, and this is a mystery box. Chris and I had spent some time in Thessaloniki. We had done some work in uh, Korea, Portugal, and other places, and he approached me about working on this project, and uh, I found it fascinating and said, absolutely, why not? Over the years, we've been working in my lab on next-generation uh, surround sound systems. And the notion from the beginning was, it was kind of a controversial statement to make, but we said the audio industry is focusing on the wrong things for improvement. They're focusing on higher sampling rates and higher bit depths, but we have already reached the limits of human perception with, with what we have, and so improving those is really not giving audible improvements to, to the listener. What's missing is, and we haven't reached the limits of human perception yet, is the number of channels. We receive information around us orally from thousands of directions. To demonstrate this concept, Kiriakakis invited Gerstel to a game of ping pong. The first two-channel stereo recording ever made was in the mid-1950s on LP, when we had stereo LPs, and they used a ping-pong game to show off that there are two speakers, therefore you can play ping-pong. So we actually took that recording from the LP and remixed it for 10 channels. 
And as you're sitting in this completely darkened room with this ping pong ball bouncing over your head, you can't help but to duck your head because you think the ping pong ball is going to hit you. There's a lot of discussion in the field of Byzantine studies about church spaces, not only their decoration, but what the experience was like for the faithful who entered the building. And so it seemed like a very exciting moment to think about partnering with an engineer to look at the interior sound of Byzantine churches. I called Chris up and explained what the project was about and that it would be in the city of Thessaloniki. And he said, Thessaloniki? That's where I'm from. My mom still lives there. I'd love to go and explore the acoustics of churches. I grew up in New York, and I went to Thessaloniki as a graduate student. My dissertation research was on uh, these churches in Thessaloniki, and I lived there for five years. Uh, So for me, it also felt like a homecoming. The city's changed a lot since Chris and I lived there. It's become much more modern, much more European, but the Byzantine churches still uh, signify the important role of the city as the second city of the empire. For me, as an art historian, I was interested in the perception of sound and how that perception was informed by the setting. When you walk into these buildings, they're cooler than the outside temperature. They smell different on the inside because they've had incense burned in them for centuries. So there's a palpable change in the atmosphere. They're dark on the inside, and you see the painted figures looming from all sides of the building looking at you. The Byzantines themselves had this notion about confusing the people who entered into the church. They themselves believed that angels inhabited the building. I was listening for reflections of voices off the walls, walking under the domes to hear the amplification, the early decay time, the reverberation. The spaces are designed so that all of the high frequencies, all of these really, really high partials, they sort of shimmer and bounce about a lot. Much of that has to do with the dome, uh, with it being made of marble, with the way the structure is done. But it's characteristic of these spaces. It's almost like a special effect. Ancient peoples had a far more intimate relationship with sound than we do now. In an odd way, the researchers are implying that the ancients could be credited with creating virtual reality. Many of the chants that we had sung in the buildings were represented on the walls so that the monks are represented in paint, chanting, directed by a choir master. And we looked at these paintings as cues for where people actually stood when they chanted. It turns out this may not have been the case. These might have been sites where sound projected out of portals or under the representations. So these were really interesting to think about how cognitive processes work, how vision, the gaze, and hearing the chant work in tandem to create a kind of transformation within the building. 
And so I think the song development, the chant development, and the painting development work hand in hand. And what we believe as a team right now is that this worked together as well with changing shapes of buildings. The buildings were um, augmented spatially to enhance the sound of chant. We found up in the galleries that they opened up uh, for us these uh, vessels that look like ancient amphora. Of course, they're a much different era. And throughout the measurements in different churches, we had been noticing these holes in the wall, which have been known acoustically to have vessels behind them because of the resonant property of these vessels uh, that can help tame some of the uh, frequencies of reverberation that are overly dominant. I was up in one of the basilicas up in the very top of this dome photographing the urns and other things that were lying around when Chris was doing sound sweeps from downstairs. So it's a you know low frequency to very high frequency. And when the high frequency energy, everything above six kilohertz and above hit, it just scattered everywhere. And, and it was quite impressive. And at that point I said, oh, the angels have arrived. Wow. I'd like to go to Thessaloniki to one of these ancient churches and just whip out my phone and see what I can get. Maybe I can even pick up a hidden choir or even angel singing. But Dan, you and I wouldn't be able to go in there just with our iPhones. The researchers needed special instruments. It's not enough to imitate it. It requires metrics. At the time in which we went to visit the city, there's been enormous controversy about the excavation of a new metro that unearthed very significant Byzantine remains. And so this phase of the city's history is very much on the minds of those who live in the city. So it was a timely moment to tap into those emotions. One aspect of what we did involved a children's chorus that came into St. Sophia and sang, and every one of those children was affected by what they did, what they participated in. They were the first group to sing in that building a specific chant since the 15th century. To me, it was fascinating to see how big of a role the spatial placement of the singers had. There were antiphonic songs. There were parts where they moved to different portions of the church where the acoustics changed dramatically. For example, in the narthex or in the aisles, you could clearly hear from an acoustical perspective the changes that would happen in reverberation, which affects clarity and intelligibility. In a time when we move increasingly away from faith, this project allows people at home to think about those dimensions of faith. What role does sound play in transporting a room from a secular space to one that is spiritually enhanced? So many people are interested in this issue, and sound plays an enormous role in that emotional affect to the perception of space. Sound has a unique advantage over picture and visuals in this case. I challenge my graduate students many times who take uh, computer graphics courses or 3D video courses. Can you construct a display that when I put it next to a window, I won't be able to tell which one is real? It's a theoretical question, but the answer is no. We have very, very high resolution displays today, but uh, none of them will fool me into thinking it's real. On the other hand, I can turn the lights off, 
uh, go stand behind the black screen next to the loudspeaker, and I can make my real voice indistinguishable from what's playing from the loudspeaker. You would be guessing. That has enormous implications for how we think about and teach architecture. When we teach architecture, we teach a silent architecture. So students look at building plans without thinking about the sound effects of the building or how to design or maximize sound effects when they construct buildings. Architects job out those effects to acoustical engineers. But this project would allow students to look at a plan and put a cursor over parts of the plan and hear, in that very segment of the building, how different the sound would be. One of the goals of this project was, of course, to understand the role of acoustics. Another goal is to see if we could capture what was happening in these structures so we can recreate it after the fact. In signal processing, if you capture the impulse response of a system, in this case the system is a church or any other ancient structure, you then have captured automatically every acoustical property of that system. If you then take singing or other sounds and process them through these impulses that you captured, the resulting sound is exactly what you would have heard as if you were in that structure. What if we could have an acoustical museum of ancient structures? They've lasted for a long time, but they won't last forever. So we want to collect as many of these impulses as possible. In the museum that I'm dreaming of, there would be a dark room filled with loudspeakers where people could enter to hear the song and all the reflections that would happen from the walls of the churches. There could even be a slider that goes across 10 centuries. And for the same song, you can experience it from the 4th century to the 14th or any time period of interest in between. Imagine you're a high school student and you want to research any kind of ancient structure. Imagine you could find that sound and get it as it was thousands of years ago. Imagine this is the Google Earth of sound, and you could be transported to that place in time. Many of these churches in other locations are being destroyed. We're losing many churches in Syria and other areas of war that had the same type of chant, the same type of music same environment. I think it's important for us to document, to be there, to understand what is being lost, what we can pass down to the next generation that they need to protect. It's the beginning of creating museums of history, visual and audible stamps of what these places were like. So moving backwards helps us to move forward. It recaptures things that are lost. It charts a path for religious observance, charts a path for new kinds of music to stimulate new musical composition. It ignites an appreciation of some of the loveliest music there is that has been lost, considered simply church music instead of great music. Particularly with all of the work that's going into the virtual environments, you know, either using Oculus Rift or, or any of the other VR headsets, this is sort of all going hand in hand and creating the Star Trek holodeck. I think it's important to see these buildings not as museums, but as living monuments of a culture, the Greek culture that is now downtrodden and beaten down by economic crises, but a culture that has much to offer the world. In my mind, it's time travel. That's how I think of it. They visually go in there and see, of course, you can be transported. Some of the, the liturgy can transport you back. 
But capturing the sound in that way and being able to experience it outside of those structures, you're capturing sounds in places the way they were 10 centuries ago. If you want to develop the ears of an acoustician and become a listening ninja, we recommend a daily dose of silence. Find a quiet place where you can just close your eyes for three minutes. Focus on the sounds around you. Try to identify the farthest thing you can hear. Hold it in focus for a beat. Then listen to something closer. How many sounds can you identify? You'll realize very quickly how resilient your ears are. In fact, the last sense that leaves our bodies before we die is hearing. Think about it. The last thing that goes, your last impressions of your world, of your life, is sound. From USC Viterbi School of Engineering in Los Angeles, thank you for listening. We're your hosts, Daniel Juhora and Amy Blumenthal. Escape Velocity executive producers are Adam Smith and Michael Chung. Our theme music was written and performed by Will Brumbach. Our mix engineer is Ryan Stewart. The Thessaloniki chanters you heard on today's podcast are Spiridon Andonopoulos, Dimos Papatsalakis, and Nectarios Andonio. And for those of you still wondering what's in Kermit's mystery box... Now, maybe if you listen to the clues... Okay, okay, me all ears, okay. Mm-hmm. What's okay. first clue? Okay, the first clue yeah. is that it is something to eat. It's a cookie! No, it's not a cookie. Not a cookie. Uh, give me a second clue. Okay, the second clue is that it is something round. A cookie! No, it's not a cookie! Not a cookie. Mm-mm. Sorry, third clue. Third clue? Just thought it might be cookie off chance. Yes, no, it's not. The, the color of this thing is orange. Something to eat mm-hmm. that is round mm-hmm. and orange. Mm-hmm. It's a cookie! No, it is not a cookie! Just thought one last chance, you know? No, it's not a no. cookie! Okay, um, uh, uh, me give up. What? How can you give up? It's something to eat that's round and orange. It's an orange. It's an orange.